0: Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. International Sloth Day is this Saturday, and I know all of our social media feeds will be full of cute images of seemingly docile, cuddly sloths. While it's pretty easy to recognize sloths today, these mammals haven't always been in the spotlight. In the past decades, sloth's fame has saved many individuals from harm, but their popularity has also led to new threats that conservationists are working diligently to overcome. So what is the journey of the sloth? Where does their story begin? To answer these questions and so much more, today we're sitting down with Tinka Plesje, the mother of sloth conservation. Tinka was first introduced to sloths in the 90s after moving to Colombia from Croatia and finding two badly injured sloths that needed rescuing. After receiving no help from professionals, she took it upon herself to learn everything there was to know about the mammals, from their biology to their rehabilitation, release, and conservation. She started the IUNA Foundation in the early 2000s and since then has released countless sloths back into the wild, started documentaries, and has shared her knowledge all across Central and South America with conservation centers, hoping to successfully rehab and release sloths. Tinka is also a member of the IUCN Anteater, Sloth, and Armadillo Specialist Group. And if that group rings a bell for you, there's a good reason. We've now had on for IUCN Zantharan Specialist. While sloths have been discussed a couple of times on the show, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to bring you stories from a wildlife conservation pioneer. Be sure to share this episode and any of the show's former sloth episodes this Saturday to spread sloth conservation awareness from the experts that know these animals the best. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Tinka. Well, hi, Tinka. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and taking us through everything sloth, and I can't wait to dive in. But sloths were in your life from day one. So please tell me, tell the whole Rewatology community, how did you get to Colombia, and when did sloths enter your life? Well, my name is Tinka.
1: I'm a Croatian living in Colombia for 35 years. I came to Colombia after my studies at the University of Miami, because as a tourist, I passed through Colombia for three months and it was a very picturesque country for me. There were so very many things to do in Colombia, especially in the natural science. I always work in natural sciences. I was working towards my PhD in natural sciences in chemistry. And all my professional work, as well as personal, is guided through the nature. So when I came to live here and to work with Colombians towards making our future better, in 1996, living on a farm, I received two slots. One 2 toad slot and another three-toed slot. They came to the Abura Valley, where Medellin is the second biggest cities in the country as a product of illegal trafficking. Nobody wanted to work with them as they had a very bad fame of not surviving. While still nowadays, 35 years <laughs> later, slots are really difficult ones to rehabilitate and to bring back to the to the nature. So with those two first slots, I did not know anything about slots, but I had very clear that there were two living beings needing our help. And I went to the zoo at that time asking a veterinarian to please help me as she was a specialist. And she told me, well, there is nothing to do with slots, All of them die. What would you say to such a, you know, phrase? I told her, so what do you do with slots when they come? To the zoo to be attended at that time. Nowadays, the situation is a little bit different. And she told me, No, I let students carry them until they die. For me, until today, now talking with you, it has been the worst phrase I have ever heard, and even worse from a professional. But nowadays, I'm very thankful to her because I started studying. And once you, once you start studying from a very different points of uh, studying to get to understand the rehabilitation and the conservation in its whole, well, you start and you never, you never finish. So that is in, in brief how I started.
0: Which is amazing. And I one thing that I absolutely love and just had the opportunity to sit down with you is you have been doing this for a very long time, which is super special. And it's hard to compete with decades of experience and passion. So from your experience, could you kind of give us a synopsis or maybe the journey? How has sloth conservation changed throughout your decades in the field? Well. When- Look, uh, there are those
1: professional currents in conservation biology that uh, individual who comes out from the forest. It is not representative for the conservation here in Colombia. You still find nowadays those types of thoughts, but I think we always have to open up our mind and look at other living beings from a very different point of view. They are living beings the same as, as we are. How much do we need to learn and study in order to understand the situation, in order to understand those other living, living beings and helping them. You know, every year, thousands and thousands of wildfowl, among them lots of course, and other Xenathans, they come out from the forest. Many of them die. But then still there are many who survived. So are we going to keep all of them in the captivity that we can never have the same as in the forest? Or we have to change, you know, our point of view and look at them through a very different perspective. One of the the very big things, and especially veterinarians, they love to talk about uh, zoonosis. Of course, each of us have our micro flora and fauna, very abundant, and it is in perfect equilibrium. When we don't have it in equilibrium, then we start feeling bad, while the same is with animals. So, if the animals, in this case, transfer their diseases to us, what are the diseases or vectors of microorganisms, all types of them that we transfer to them? So we cannot anymore look and think that we are the only potent human beings and that everything turns around us. I think the modern nature, Gaia, uh, the earth is telling us, Hey, my dears. Okay. You keep on thinking like that. And somehow nowadays I have to defend from you. So all of us are complaining nowadays because of global warming. But what have we done so far, in all these uh, last decades in order to start solving the problem? Because the problem is not easy to solve it from today until tomorrow. Not on a very global level, That it failed because it, on the global level, it has been for decades trying to do something, but doing something on the everyday life each of us, I think we can do very much. And then you come again, of course, to the animals, you know, the animals come to the big cities because people from the big cities feeling alone on this jungle of concrete and asphalt from the vacations when they come and here in Colombia, they like to come with a little pet, with a little tiny plush living toy. And that's why slots, for example, and especially a three-toed slot, they are personal living plush toys. But people do not understand that they are living beings, that they were taken from the mother chest, that they were exposed to all type of mistreatments, that they were stored in places without any hygiene. And finally, they were exposed to the edges of the roads, generally, to to sell them and if that is not enough, when they are sold because traffickers say, oh, they are pursued pets for you and that is not the truth. And they say, (coughs) the the traffickers, you just open your refrigerator and whatever you find in your refrigerator, that is, that uh, the animal eats (laughs) and that is everything but the truth. So people bring them. To the big cities, they realize very, very soon that what they were told has nothing to do with the real situation. Very, very soon as Lot, in this case, they start showing that they are sick. When a wild animal shows to you that they are sick, they are already very sick. So there is not very much what you can do, even, even though if you would love to help them but if somebody is already so bad, well, there is not very much you can do it. So that is generally the situation that you live here, that, that you live in the whole Amazon basin and the countries all around the Amazon basin, you find a similar situation or even worse in Central America, in certain countries in Central America, because they have illegal trafficking for tourism so you have you have double danger for for the animals on the other hand people are very amazed with sloths uh, they are tender loving creatures uh, they inspire us very uh, very much but i think it is a hypocrisy we are saying that but we do not understand we don't want really to understand that well in the world, each of us have a certain space where we live and the function that we fulfill and we want to fulfill. The same is with white fauna. Their, their place is in the forest. They fulfill a very important function. And if you want to make the, the circle completely closed, Indirectly, the same as other wild fauna uh, as as flora, they contribute to the making the, all these troubles about the global heating uh, less visible. So if we don't understand, we are contributing to our own extinction. If we really want to keep on being very anthropocentric. So when we started working with clouds. At the very beginning, late 90s, uh, first years of this century, we were rescuing slots door to door, uh, trying to to talk with people and make them aware that they uh, are not doing something uh, good. Uh, People would uh, treat us really very bad. They would tell us, I bought this animal and this animal is mine. So I can do whatever I want with that animal. Well, the result was a dead animal. most of them come to the big cities with a very short age. There were situations where the animals were coming to to Medellin, the second biggest city in the first month of their, of their life. So throughout our, uh, you know, educational processes, door to door, person to person, and later, you know, making conferences, uh, workshops, and, and, and so so on. Nowadays, you find very many people, they are aware that you cannot think like that and you cannot do it in such a way. Within big cities nowadays, you find people who go and bring those animals to the big cities. You find generally the neighborhood, those who call the authorities and called us in case of uh, sloths, health eaters, and armadillos saying, Hey, look, but this person in such and such place, they have a wild animal, please do something. So in terms of quantifying, we cannot quantify it, but in terms of changing the attitude of people, we can say it's changed significantly. So I think it is really very important.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. So it sounds like in your 35 years, you've gone from just seeing that pretty much anybody they wanted a sloth, they might not have known the dangers or the risk they were putting the animals in to now where the neighborhood is like, oh, my gosh, my neighbor has an, an illegal pet. And calls the authority. I mean, that, that's a huge swing and, and really fantastic just goes to show what your work has done over the years. And if it go like, let's go down this path a little further. So we've we've talked about sloths a couple times on the podcast, but I think it is great to go through a refresher. What are some of the biggest threats that they are currently facing? And has that changed? And your time in the field, has uh, what was their biggest risk in 1996? Is that still the biggest risk here in 2022? Or has that changed?
1: Well, the very big threats to
0: slots, well as
1: well as other wild fauna, but in particular of sloths, are still the same. And I think they are even worse. When I tell you they are, they are even worse because in these last 35 years that I live here in Colombia, you know, deforestation and fragmentation has been extremely big every year. Thousands and thousands of hectares just disappear. Illegal trafficking keeps ongoing. It changes, you know, the patterns of, uh, of functioning because we contributed as well in the capturing or of certain, certain traffickers. But then they disappear from one place and then they are working on another place and and so on. But then you find global heating, you find fires, forest fires, that 35 years before they were not that strong as as they are nowadays. You find the agriculture and cattle farming every day is more and more extensive which means there is less and less forest for slots in this case. And we have to keep in our mind that slots are extremely arboreal mammals. Slots are very vulnerable on the floor and they are very slow. On the floor, they are very slow. On the canopy of the forest, they are everything but slow and there is a lot of things that people keep on saying that especially tree toad is the slowest animal in the world. That is not the truth. They are as slow as they want to be slow, depending upon the danger they see around or not, because as uh, arboreal mammals, they developed perfect camouflage. So if a slug does not move, it is very difficult. To find out where a slot is, even for a very good eye who lives in the region, or us that we studied them in 2004, so long time ago, we released a group of slots, the whole small population, in a place where in the past used to have slots, but when we released these ones, there were no slots. So we were doing monitoring for one year and the people who worked in the, in the file, they continued monitoring. And after a month, after the release of, of certain slots, we went for a checkup and we were obs- observing the forest, the no movement. There was nothing. So where were the slots that we released <laughs> oh, one month ago and it one moment, very strong feeling passed through me, and I said to a colleague, "A slot is observing us." Nothing was moving. I was looking in front of myself, and the colleague said, "You are inventing. You are getting crazy." Wow. Well, I I I understand. That. At the moment when a person said that. A slot moved. It was really extremely, extremely impressive. And the slot was behind the cecropia tree. And when he heard in quotation marks <laughs> our conversation in Spanish, he imagined. and the slot moved down behind the tree and it moved to the part where there were branches extending outside. So that slot could hide himself and we not see a slot anymore. But I saw a slot in a moment when a slot moved. That was the only moment when I realized that I was not crazy. <laughs> that the slot was really over
0: there, you know? But like, let's flip the coin here. So we talked about... So much about what's facing them, you know, habitat loss, agriculture, the illegal pet trade. I mean, there's so many things that are going against the sloths. So from your experience, what solutions work? And what don't? And do you have any examples of that you could share? Maybe some initiatives that went really well that you tried, and maybe some that didn't work. To hear to hear both sides of this, like it's all a big experiment, right? Conservation is just <laughs> we're all figuring it out. So yeah, maybe what's worked and what hasn't. We have been
1: working through a foundation called Ai URAO, which is compound compound of words, ai, which means a three-toed slot and uh, unaun, which is a two-toed slot in the language of indigenous Tupis. And throughout our work, we have different tools. One is rehabilitation, another one is investigation because you have to generate knowledge about the species in order to help them. And while each country, so in particular, talking about the conservation about the geographical range uh, subspecies, uh, the problem of which country anyway, you have to generate those questions and answers and what we really found out people do very many things because of their ignorance because they do not know what it implies, and from the past, very many of us, especially being kids. Oh, we are going to, to raise one slot because we can do it uh, with a dog or, or a little kitty without no big difference, a very big difference among wild fauna and, and domestic fauna. 35 years is a big period of time and the situation uh, changes. Before uh, there was a lot of forest. Now, it's there is very little in comparison with before, it is fragmented, and and so on. So, I think habitat problem is really a very very big one. If people would just a little bit open their mind and try to understand how beneficial for our well being is to preserve each tree, fragment of forest, start connecting one patch with another patch of the forest, with, an, with the native vegetation, they would do miracles. If you just talking about the raising temperature of the earth, you enter in the forest, even though if you are in tropics, the temperature is lower in comparison with the one when you are going outside. Where there is there is no forest, where you see how efficient forest is, production of of oxygen, uh, contributing to the to the climate that is not so so strong and so uh, the changes very very brutal changes. So if we get to know that. I'm I'm sure already. I'm still very idealistic, but I'm sure <laughs> that people, people would, from their everyday life, instead of cutting one tree, they would plant one tree. They would take up or pick up seeds from the floors in their garden, plant it, and later taking care of a tree, letting it growing up, and it is not very difficult. It really is not very difficult. So our work started with rehabilitation, but if you want to rehabilitate and return an animal back to the nation, which we did from those first two slots that we received until nowadays, and I can talk to you about uh, hundreds of slots returned back to the nation after the rehabilitation program. And assuring that they will survive, of course, with telemetry, with direct observation, teaching the local people how to continue monitoring and and so on. You know, you get to know that uh, people start getting into your story. That is not really your story. It is the story of all of us because it is our responsibility. I always think humans as well as the nature is very joyful if we know how to enjoy. So, well, plant a tree, take it, take care of a tree. Don't buy an animal because of all those consequences that we talked about. So there are very many things we can do it and we haven't done it so far. Start doing it right now and you will really see the difference. Because as I told you before, we saw the differences in the attitudes of people. Well, I can tell you now, 15th of October, we are going to celebrate 11th slot international day. That day was created in 2010 in the first international meeting about well-being and conservation of slots. We have done. Three meetings throughout these last, uh, last decades, and in particular, here in Colombia from 2016, trying to fulfill the national program for the conservation of selagras that we did with the Ministry of Environment. The very weak point is habitat, as I already uh, told you. So we created a strategy, slant territories. I talk about the Slav territories at different regions in the country, because what is still left you find in different parts of the country. So, especially in the region of the country is, is placed in certain parts. There are very many big problems with sloths, with the subspecies of the Andir two-toed Slavs, because the forest is cut down. Andean region is one of the most populated regions. Very fragmented problems with the dogs uh, that turn wild. They start crossing the, the roads. They are hit by, by cars. You find the problems with electrocutions. Not that strong as in uh, Venezuela or in Costa Rica. It's much, much worse over there than here, but then working with local people and professionals over there from the region, year from year, we taught firemen what to do in case that they need to rescue them. We talked about the species. We started cultivating those moments as Slot International Day with the several towns in, in the department of Cundinamarca to understand that we don't need to make very big uh, movements. Uh, But from our everyday life, we can contribute very much. So for this year, we are going to plant more than 200 trees. Not in whichever part, not in whichever place. We already did the work with the local people that they monitor in the region. They know the places where they slots go, where there are more problems crossing the road or not, you know? So working with local people that each of them is going to participate, bringing their tools, we got to the trees of the native vegetation, of course, and people have been working together with us, understanding and getting to know that that is really necessary and that is really needed. We have a social media for the slot protection over there, we communicate We share, we help each other. So you see, there are very many things that you can really do. So it is an invitation not to change really a date of a slot international day, because it is every year in October. It is a third Saturday in October, which is a month of, uh, of kids, because we are talking about the kids from the forest. All these dear mammals, they are kids from the forest. All of them are orphans, you know? So that Slot International Day every year, we can celebrate in very many ways. Not necessarily making a big deal, not taking selfies, taking them out from the forest and so on and so forth, but really helping them. And I can tell you. It is a very special feeling as you finish a day, very tired because you walk, you plant. So it will be a good exercise, breathing a very, very clean oxygen and contributing to, in this case, a lot who inspires us, who awakens everything nice and good and dear that we still have. It's I think it's really a very noble activity, but that's how I feel it, of course. <laughs> and many other people, many other people do it as well.
0: That's wonderful. And it sounds like going through all of that and what this International Sloth Day or Sloth International Day is really aiming for it. It sounds like habitat restoration. And I just, I was just curious, is there a movement or some sort of initiative in Colombia to possibly make wildlife corridors between these fragmented areas? Or is that what you're hoping will come? Or I guess, what is the state on that in, in Colombia? Well, look, you find
1: talking in a very general sense about two different situations. Why Government entities on a global uh, level and sometimes not on a regional level, they do have uh, activities talking about the corridors, you know. We use the word uh, slot territories because of course we want to raise a slot to an umbrella species because slots live on the canopy of the forest and they live on the canopy of a very good developed forest. They survive in a secondary forest. If that forest has more than 20 years, which means it is recovered uh, forest. So I think we have been successful. We could have been more if we obtained bigger support from the government. That is not the case, but we always stimulate a citizen participation, conscious and active citizen participation. Why? Because what makes a very big difference and a very big change is our everyday life. So, through everyday life, you can do it. And little by little, people are opening towards that. Because it is not just to play whichever trick in whichever part, you have to understand. And what, for example, makes me really extremely, extremely happy, the cattlemen, at least in certain parts here in Colombia, in terms that in last few years, uh, they started coming to us, asking us to please help them in the conservation strategies. We developed conservation strategy among uh, the water system throughout the creeks. Which is the memory of the earth that they are over there waiting for the better conditions in order for the vegetation to express, and we help them. We have them planting native vegetation and doing the continuity from one creek to another creek. So if we at the very beginning in this strategy make you know patches, but we have a patch of thousand hectares not one hectare and besides, you know, stimulating people to do others, we are doing a very good job and that's what we are doing at, at this moment and it makes me really very happy and well, you know, you can talk about these processes, but you have to work a social factor as well. So with workshops. With conferences, you start working shoulder to shoulder with the local people and they start changing for sure. And I'm telling you from the experience, because we have done it, we are doing it and we will continue doing it.
0: And that is really a very, very rewarding work. Wow. That is wonderful that they were approaching you like, we want, they see it. Like that's, that is a beautiful story. That is like the Mecca of just, ah, yes, in conservation. When people are like, they see you as a leader in this and they come to you and be like, please, we want to help. Can you help us help the wildlife? Yes. Well, I could not believe it. I was like, oh, great. We are getting over there, you know? And I would love to take this conversation up a notch, if you don't mind. So you are very connected. You might be like the grandmother of sloth conservation. Like you are like the leader in this. And with that, you know, so many people working across the world to slay, well, not the world. I mean, they're in Central and South America. I know this part of the world to protect sloths. So How does maybe the picture of sloth conservation in Colombia maybe differ from other parts of their range? Is it worse? Is it better? Like, of course, yours is doing amazing work. But through your connections, are there other organizations that are really doing sloth conservation the right way? Yes. And uh, what are some of those so that we can go support them and make sure that they're getting the support they need? Well, look, uh, there are very, very
1: few of us. Uh, we all of us uh, work together in the specialist group of the IUCN, and uh, we have different uh, uh, different committees where we work conservation, where we will work taxonomy, education, and uh, and and so on. Uh, so. There is one uh, project in Costa Rica the only one that I really know that tries to do their best you know it is a process it is not something that from today until tomorrow I can do just about everything but uh, at least uh, all of us are very open we share knowledge among among us we share it with the president of the of the group there is another one one process in Venezuela, you would be surprised. I am really very, very happy to assess them. It doesn't have very many years. It is a personal initiative from one slot that was saved almost two years ago. And the person started organizing in a formal way throughout the foundation. And rescuing slots on a daily base, you would get completely crazy what I shared with him and what we, you know, try, but he's the, the main uh, actor, of course, rescuing slots uh, from the uh, electricity wires. Uh, there are some uh, problems in those populations around the cities, it is uh, around Caracas those satellite towns, but the situation in Venezuela is so complex that uh, you really don't know what to do and how to approach a problem, because you never know at what time it's going to turn against you. And you are doing your best to try to help slots in this case. So you see, I'm telling you about, we are the one, there is a one, two in Costa Rica, three in Venezuela, four. I know there are some in Brazil, but I don't know very much about them. So you see, that is that is really very, very, very few.
0: So it does sound like there definitely are just a few players here that are really trying to do it right. And it is nice to hear, though, that they there are, like, they're pretty spread out. You said Venezuela. Don't know as much about Brazil, but it sounds like there's at least something going on in Brazil that's positive. Costa Rica. Yeah, so it sounds like... things are hopefully moving in the right way and to bring this up even further up this is a very international podcast and we have listeners from literally all over the world and some of us listening might really want to help too is there a way for maybe me in the colorado rockies or somebody in india or africa listening how can we all help with sloth conservation yes there are uh, first of all why
1: I guess all these have their web pages, their Instagram, and all those social medias and so on. Get in contact with very few of us, donate a talk with each program in order to understand a little bit more, to get informed a little bit more, and start participating. It can be throughout the volunteering program, those who have volunteering programs or donating
0: awesome yeah and i also love too so like our very amazing mutual friend Adriana, one of the things that she and i talked a lot about when we sat down was you know like not taking selfies like you know the stop sloth selfie campaign like that was a really big deal Mm -hmm. and things like that and like making sure that we hire responsible tour operators if we are in a country that has slaws you know just like things like that so a lot of really good research and then of course yeah voluntourism oh my gosh that is such a big that is such a big yes. way to help such a big way to help because it's it's hard to get <laughs> enough just labor yes. help <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah and so to turn it back a little bit more personal I would, I love asking this question because I never know what anybody's going to say. With your years of experience and everything that you've had to go through, I'm sure you've gone through so many struggles. I can only imagine. If What piece of advice would you like to impart with us? If there's like one message that we should take away with, what would you like us to, to hear? In 2005, I won the competition
1: to create a- the campaign for, for us. And when they were entering in the place where they were going to compete, I was putting to each participant of those, a a little sticker with a three-throwed slot head. And I would put that sticker from their car and then, and ask them, do you want to keep that slot in your car? And all of them were telling me, yes. From that event came the campaign with the slogans, keep them in your heart, but leave them in the wine. This year we are using it in the IUCN group because everybody just loves it. So, well, that would be really the short message. Keep them in your heart, but leave them in the wine. And, you know, put yourself just for a second into the skin or the neck.
0: Right. No, that's so good. That's like the perfect quote of the whole entire episode. It's wonderful. <laughs> so you've imparted so much wisdom with us, Tinka. I- I'm sure that somebody listening might want to learn more. Is there a way, like a website that someone should go to or a way to get a hold of you? Yeah, where should people go if they want to learn more? So when well, you see there are very many ways that you
1: can get to know about those animals, which have very many videos. We have a lot of educational material. Well, I'm close to the
0: website, page and uh, well, we'll see what we can do. Yes. And of course, so we have very elaborate show notes at Rewildology.com. So I'll make sure that all of the links are in there and and everything, but yeah, yeah. again, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wonderful knowledge. And I really hope that one day I will finally get to Colombia and meet you in person. Yeah. And then meet Darian in person and just all of you amazing ladies that I am so inspired by. So again, Dinka, thank you for everything. Happy International Sloth Day. Can't wait to follow you. (laughs) Such a fun conversation with Dinka. So after listening to this episode, I think we all should go to Colombia and meet all of these special sloth ladies. I was thinking we all should fly to Costa Rica, pick up Adriana, then head to Colombia to visit Tinka and Dieran, then continue south and meet up with Mariella to try and find pink fairy armadillos. Oh, and drink a ton of Argentine wine while we search. (laughs) Doesn't this sound like such an epic trip? Yes. But anyways, be sure to check out the show notes to learn more about supporting sloth conservation and International Sloth Day. If you have a specific question you'd like to discuss about today's topic, head on over to the Rewildology YouTube channel and submit your question in the comment section of today's episode. Some of you have reached out and asked how you could support the show. Well, I am so happy to share that there are several ways to do so. Some zero-cost ways to support the show, including subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewardology newsletter at the website, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, for making the show sound and look awesome and right for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab.